DW Deutsche Welle. Pulse. Hello and warm welcome to Pulse, bringing you 20 minutes of mind-stimulating and some inspiring stories intertwined with music to put you in the right mood. I'm Crispin Wakideo in Bonn, Germany. Coming up on this edition of Pulse, Sierra Leoneans in the diaspora hold a vigil for the flood victims. And poverty knows no color. We take you to South Africa where some white families are struggling to survive. My husband goes every day and he goes looks for scrap and then he goes to the scrapyard and every money that we get we put in for food. Don't miss out on those stories. Plus, what's next for Kenya after the Supreme Court annulled President Uhuru Kenyatta's election victory? We'll find out in a moment. More than three weeks ago, Sierra Leone was hit by one of the worst tragedies in the country's history. At least 500 people were killed and hundreds are still missing after Sugarloaf Mountain came crashing down on unsuspecting residents following torrential rains. The Sierra Leonean community in London recently held a candlelit vigil to remember the victims. Philip Warwick joined them in the grounds of St. John's Church in Stratford, East London, where they offered tributes, songs and prayers. Hand in hand, each holding a candle, the London Sierra Leonean community came together for an emotional candlelit vigil. Born and raised in London, a first-generation Sierra Leonean, Soraya Barr is a poet, writer and spoken word artist. She explained what compelled her to come to the candlelit vigil. I couldn't help but not feel overwhelmed with grief and sadness and anger at how a disaster of that magnitude has been allowed to happen. Though it was a natural disaster, there was a lot of factors that were man-made. Another first-generation British Sierra Leonean is Asabi Hawa. She's a singer, songwriter, poet, and also a spoken word artist. I do have friends whose relatives were affected or know people who were affected and it's very sobering and it's just, sorry, it's just really, it's just really hard because you'd think in this generation things like that would be able to be prevented. Long, long time. I know. I see you then. You get other meetings. I see you. Um, the Sierra Leonean community in London is tight-knit. 
they got together to pay tribute to one of their group, Zainab Din, who died in the Grenfell fire tragedy. And now, with the help of the Grenfell community, they are busy organizing to send aid out to Freetown. Soraya was touched by the community's sense of solidarity. I think the most compelling thing that I saw this week was that an Instagram ad was put out by the Aklam village based in Ladbrook Grove. They were a very fundamental part of community activism during the Grenfell fires. They were very compelled to raise donations and get a container shipped out to Sierra Leone and they're working with a charity on the ground. Sierra Leone migration to the UK has a long history dating back to the 19th century. Sierra Leoneans refer to their homeland as Mama Salon. Asabi explains the strong connection between the diaspora and the motherland. That's our home, that's our mother. Sierra Leone gave birth to us, whether it was directly or indirectly, no matter how near or far we are from it. We have that connection, we feel that connection through our culture, through our music, through our food, through our relations with people. Asabi's music provides a moment of reflection. While some burials have taken place, many hundreds of people are still missing. Even when the worst has been cleared up, waterborne diseases will be the next problem to face the people in the country. That's why Asabi thinks it's important to maintain the links and support. Once, let's say, this crisis is over, it's not then going home and forgetting about it and, oh, I did my part and that's the end of the story because I feel that's what Sierra Leone needs. It needs continued support from the diaspora. There's only so much the government will do and can do, but we as people, we as individuals, we as an organisation can still continue to do things. The vigil was mostly attended by women of the Sierra Leonean community, with the Deputy High Commissioner making an appearance. For Soraya, the role of women is evident. Well, the politicians are mainly men. I think that's (laughs) self-explanatory. But if a woman is neglected in any way, everyone will suffer. We refer to Sierra Leone as Mama Salon. And she's being neglected. And look at the effect it has on everybody. Many people, even in the diaspora, feel let down by the Sierra Leonean government. They believe it has failed to learn from the mistakes following past disasters and that it is individuals left to cope and pick up the pieces, both at home and abroad. That's why it's so important for this London group to keep singing and stay strong together. Philip Warwick, DW, London. Let's now change gears and head to Kenya, where the political temperatures keep rising and rising. The country's electoral commission has set October the 17th as the date for the repeat of the presidential election. The Supreme Court annulled President Uhuru Kenyatta's victory after the opposition candidate Raila Odinga challenged the results. 
Sela Oneko covered the August 8th election and is now back here in Bonn, and now she joins me in the studio. Sela, is the country ready to host the repeat election? Well, the problem I think at the moment is that the presidential candidates don't really seem to be prepared. I mean, um, President Kenyatta has said he's prepared to go back to the polls, even though he was unhappy with the decision by the Supreme Court to rerun elections, to have whole new fresh elections. And But Raila Odinga, the opposition candidate, who obviously wanted the fresh elections, has now said the 17th of October is not the correct date for the elections. And the court... Uh, or the, the Electoral Commission has basically 60 days in which it has to prepare new elections. But the question is, of course, if they weren't ready the last time around because there were irregularities in the tallying centres, for example, and in basically counting the results, will they be ready within 60 days or within less than 60 days, which um, now seems to be the case because the elections will be held in within six weeks instead of eight weeks, basically. That's right. And let's... Maybe just stay with that uh, part of the contention within the Electoral Commission. That's the IEBC, as it's known in Kenya. Uh, This guy, the CEO, Ezra Chiloba, seems to be the main focus. Uh, The opposition doesn't want him to to retain his job. They want him out of his job, Uh, while President Uhuru Kenyatta's jubilee say that uh, nothing should change uh, at the IEBC. Why, Why are people, the opposition particularly, why are they keen on having Chiloba out? Well, it's strange because basically after the elections, uh, Chebukati, the chairman, chairman exactly, was actually the kind of boo man in this in this whole scenario. And now the attention has changed to Chiloba. And um, basically, uh, NASA, the opposition, named six people who they said they want out of uh, of the organization of the next elections. But they really have to kind of still clarify why they why they want this change. But again, he has. A lot of supporters among Kenyan women. He does, I understand yeah. <laughs> that uh, many of them are, are crying for this thing. No, 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 we need him there. Uh, why, why is that? Why does he have so much support among Kenyan women? Yeah, so I mean, the funny story was that during the elections, well, everybody, I think people were basically bored sitting at home waiting for the results to come out. And then the Electoral Commission found out that everybody was Googling Ezra Chiloba's name. And they found out many women were Googling it. They were checking, is he Muslim? Is he married? Does he have children? So apparently there's a lot of interest there from women, from Kenyan women, um, in this uh, young uh, CEO of the Electoral Commission. Now, you wrote a commentary after the Supreme Court's decision. You wrote a commentary and you titled it uh, Kenya's Elections Teach Us to Expect the Unexpected. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, we've kind of seen it with um, the US elections. We've seen it with Brexit. And now again, we're seeing it in the Kenyan elections that things are not going as, it's not business as usual. It's not, things are not going as we've always seen them. And in Kenya, kind of the expectation was that the courts will decide in the favor of the president, of the incumbent president, Uhuru Kenyatta, who was re-elected. But this hasn't happened this time. And it's, it's, it's a very strange scenario because uh, in the run-up to the elections, the courts repeatedly decided in favor of Uhuru Kenyatta. So this kind of brings new, fresh winds into the whole political scenario. And that's what we've been seeing around the world. And, you know, pollsters are no longer correct. Um, The media is no longer correct. Everybody just has to be open to whatever's coming. All right. So we'll keep it uh, here at at Pulse and we'll be watching what happens next in the Kenyan election. Thank you, Saloneka, for joining us on Pulse. Thanks. Si no
Luis Fonsi featuring Daddy Yankee with Despacito. Let's now continue with the program. Post-apartheid South Africa is also known as the Rainbow Nation because of the many races that now live in the country. During the apartheid era, whites skimmed the riches of the country to the disadvantage of non-white South Africans. Black townships, the slums of the poor, became the synonym for the unjust system and also breeding grounds for resistance to apartheid. Today, the tables have turned. Thousands of families from South Africa's white slums, as Natalie Mula narrates in this report by Vanessa da Rocha. The child who is singing lives in Munsiville, one of the thousands of townships or slums in South Africa. Her name is Chegotatso. She's standing in the mud with bare feet in front of her family's shack. She's too young to understand that the song she sings was written for Nelson Mandela, the icon of the struggle for equality between blacks and whites in South Africa. And it's the equality that black people have struggled so hard to achieve in the past that today's whites are claiming now. Because poor white people in South Africa are discriminated against, says Lee Dupree. She's the director of the NGO South African Family Relief Project. We have children, white children, that were born in a so-called rainbow nation, free and fair democracy since 1994. But these children are being persecuted against because of the colour of their skin. Uh, Their parents cannot find jobs. These children are living in poverty. They are being punished for what has happened in apartheid. Between the 1950s and 1994, racial segregation was institutionalised in the country with the apartheid system. White people had much better educational and economic opportunities. They were better off than non-whites, and many still are. Black and coloured people, which make up 90% of the population, were oppressed, and even today the majority are still poor. To try to compensate for this inequality, the South African government has prioritised blacks in the labour market and in social programs over the last two decades. For Lee Dupree, that explains the increase in the number of marginalised white South Africans living in slums. We have many, many white people in poverty because of the laws that have been put in place in South Africa prohibiting white South Africans from employment. The BBEE law is the broad-based black economic empowerment law, which clearly states that a company must um, employ at least 75% black people before they can employ a white person. There's no consensus on the number of whites living in poverty in South Africa. Assistance institutions estimate 400,000 people, while the government puts the number at some 40,000. Across the country, around 12 million people are considered poor. That's half of the South African population. Some of the impoverished whites began to occupy land irregularly in the late 1990s. The small settlements grew into slums that today are called white squatter camps. Like Munsiville... Many of these white slums are concentrated on the outskirts of Johannesburg, the country's main economic centre. Munsiville used to be a black township, but in 2015 white families started squatting right next to it. Today some 300 people live in the white part of the slum that's called Pango Camp. Walking through, the smell of paraffin hangs in the air. There's no electricity. 
People usually cook on open fires or makeshift fireplaces built from old tin containers. Food needs to be consumed instantly because there's no refrigeration. Rain makes things more difficult. Everything gets wet and the paths get muddy. Unemployment is also a huge problem in the slums. Resident Stephanie Jensen says her husband has been looking for a job for eight years. Yeah, I don't know. It's very difficult for our white people to get a job these days. It's very, very difficult. My husband goes every day and he goes looks for scrap and then he goes to the scrapyard and every money that we get we put in for food. Paraffin and candles. Candles are vital for the Ianson family because they don't have other lights. Like their neighbours, the family cooks on an open fire on the ground. Water is also a big problem. There are only five public taps in the settlement to supply hundreds of people. Women queue up to carry water home in buckets every day. Without sanitation and clean water, residents often get sick. Willie Britz, an elderly man who's been living here for several years, is wary of asking for medical assistance. He says that in emergencies, ambulances often aren't willing to serve the slum residents. When you phone the ambulance, you're waiting very, very long. They don't come out here if you don't take him to hospital by yourself. It's very bad. Only half of the estimated 12 million people living in poverty in South Africa qualify for government assistance. More than a quarter of people of working age are unemployed. South Africa's Labor Department says it has a strategy to increase jobs in the country and that current employment policies are still needed to help groups that were marginalised in the past. Along with addressing unemployment and inequality, more still needs to be done to achieve the goals Nelson Mandela envisioned for all South Africans. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. That report was written by Vanessa da Rocha. And that brings us to the end of this show. Tune in next week for another packed edition of Pulse. I'm Crispin Mokideu, and from all of us here at DW, have a wonderful week ahead. Come over and start up a conversation with just me And trust me, I'll give it a chance Now take my hand, stop it, and the man on the jukebox And then we start to dance And now I'm singing like, girl, you know I want your love Your love was handmade for somebody like me Come on now, follow my lead I may be crazy, don't mind me Say, boy, let's not talk too much Grab on my waist and put that body on me Come on now, follow my lead Come, come on now, follow my lead Smell like you every day discovering something